I just want to let you know that, that, that I'm not just here representing myself. When we got this, this, um, this message, this invitation to come to Bermuda, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to come to Bermuda, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, we've been following what you've been going through, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Sister Joan has, has kept us updated, and, and our heart has gone out to you. You guys have had a tough year. It's been a tough year. And we, so, so when we had this invitation to come, we really sought the Lord and, and, and felt to, to seek Him and put out a fleece and, and put out another fleece. Lord, are you sending me? Am I going to come? Am I just going to come and stand, stand up there and, and, and just talk out of my own? Or are you, gonna, are you sending me? Do you have a word? Is this, am I the one who's supposed to go? And is this the time for me to come? And we really sought, sought the Lord and put out the fleeces. And I want you to know the Lord is sending me here. Because God loves Bermuda, and the kingdom of God is near to Bermuda. God loves Bermuda. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 4, actually. When... And it talks about Jesus beginning to preach. And then there in verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus began His kingdom ministry. And His message was, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, get ready to enter in. And then He demonstrated the kingdom by healing the sick, restoring the blind, the lame were walking. Folks, I want to declare to you that the kingdom of God is near to Bermuda. The kingdom of God is here. Now is the time for this nation. The Lord loves this nation. God has a vision for this nation. As we were uh, preparing, this was actually before we got the invitation. Uh, when When I told my friend we were coming here, he says, remember that dream I told you about about a month ago? And I said, no, I don't remember it. Remind it of me. And a very close friend of mine had this dream. And in this dream, we were, several of us were there. Um, Sister Joan Simmons was there. I was there. And, and a lot of people that were probably you, Bermudans. And on this boat, over this beautiful water, and the bottom of the boat had this, like, like a glass bottom so you could see down into this beautiful, crystal clear water. And down below, you could see this amazing, beautiful city. And then, out from the bottom of the water, the city began to rise up. And it was a picture of the new Bermuda. Bermuda the way it was meant to be. Do you know that as much as God has a vision of the new Jerusalem, He has such a vision, He's so excited of creating a home for His children, His family who He loves so much, He's already decorating it. He knows what He's going to pay, and I tell you, He knows what He's going to pave the streets with. And we think they're paved in gold. No, they're not. It doesn't say what they're paved in. It says they're paved like gold. In other words, he, he's sparing no expense, and he doesn't just have natural resources. Everything ever created in the universe is at his resource. And the closest thing he could get to describe it was gold. He's already decorating and sparing no expense. Folks, as vivid as he has a picture of the new Jerusalem, he has a picture of the new Bermuda. Bermuda it was meant to be. Bermuda fulfilling its destiny. Bermuda changing the world. Hallelujah. And so I believe that's what this dream was representing. And the, and, the, um, and, and the city was coming up through this crystal clear water. And it was so beautiful. And my friend said, I just felt such a tremendous presence of the Lord upon this. And then he asked the Lord, Lord, why are you showing them this? And why are you doing this? And the answer was so simple. Because they asked. That's it. Because they asked. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And what the Lord wants to do today is to impart an anointing for intercession. A spirit of prayer. And folks, new like you've never experienced before, I believe. Because it's not an intercession. So often we think, okay, we have this vision. We hear about this this vision of transformation. We hear about the call to disciple nations. We hear stories about what's happening around the globe. And we say, oh, that, wouldn't that be nice? 
I feel the call of the Lord. I feel the tug of the Lord for that to help and hear. But then we put the burden all upon ourselves. And we feel we have to pray and pray and pray. And if we pray hard enough, then it will happen. Folks, we've got it backwards. Folks, God loves Bermuda. The burden is upon Him. For you to get an inheritance, somebody had to pay for it, but it wasn't you. It was your father. It was your daddy. And all you have to do is ask for it. And when do you get it? When you come of age and when you ask for it. And I speak to you today that it is time for Bermuda to come of age. And I speak to you today that it is time for this congregation, as an apostolic congregation, as ones that have been called to be sent to Bermuda, as ones who are called to be the first fruits among, um, of, a, of a transformation, it is time for you to come of age. And to go and ask, that's what, that which has been held in escrow, which is legally yours, waiting for the time for it to be released. I would say to you today, in the name of the Lord, now is the time, now is the season for it to be released. The kingdom of God is near you. So to understand this better, what is Jesus talking about? Let's go to the context. And there's two messages I want you to focus on. One is, to, is laid out right there in the next chapter, Jesus' first message, and the one that is most developed, very famous. I mean, we've all read it over and over. The Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes. But before we go there, I want you to go to Isaiah 61. And this is actually the text of Jesus' very first message in public ministry. You know, he was born of a virgin and, and uh, lived for 30 years. And then John the Baptist began his ministry. So Jesus went down to John the Baptist and he was baptized by him. And first John the Baptist said, I, ain't gonna, I don't want to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's good for, 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 to fulfill all things. Let me honor you. Let me submit to the spiritual protocol, the way things should be. Let me honor those over me and those that come before me. So he was baptized. And after he was baptized, the, the, the Spirit came upon him and anointed him. He had the Spirit before. Obviously, he was the Son of God. But in a special anointing and empowerment, a presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that Jesus didn't do any miracles on his own? Think about that. I can't do miracles on my own. Jesus couldn't do miracles on his own. That was part of the temptation. Turn this bread, this stone into bread. There's two ways Jesus could have failed. He could have tried to do it on his own, or he could have doubted that God could do it. And he says, no. I may not be able to, but when the Lord speaks the word, it's not about meeting my needs. The anointing is about serving a higher purpose. Every miracle Jesus did, He did through the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that has been given freely to you, to each of you. Hallelujah. So the, the, the anointing came upon Him. What did He do next? Where did He go? Did he go out, oh, I got the anointing, I got the Holy Ghost. Come on, the kingdom of God is near. No. What was the next step? Where did he go? Does anybody know? Where? Where? The wilderness. Anybody can relate? The wilderness where he battled the devil for 40 days. It wasn't until he confronted the devil. Do you know? Hallelujah. Do you know where he went? He went up to, to the wilderness where the high places had been, where the high places were. If you look at the history of Israel, they had put up high places where they worshipped right at the beginning, right at the beginning when Solomon lost the kingdom. They put up high places. And there were periodic revivals where, people would, where the people would turn from their idolatry and come back to the Lord. But the high places were the brass ceiling of the revivals that they never moved beyond then because it says each of them stopped short of tearing down the high places. That's where Jesus went to tear down the ancient strongholds, to open up the heavens for Israel to fulfill its destiny. And He battled with the devil and it was after He broke the power of the devil that then angels came to minister to him. And then he came back and said, all right, it's time for me to start ministering. And he went to Capernaum. 
uh, which was near his hometown, and the timing was all perfect. The reading that day was from this scripture here, Isaiah 61. It was a scroll then. They didn't have it divided like we do. And he picked it up and he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he set down the scroll and sat down. Everybody was happy. And then he said one word that just set them off. He said, today that's, this passage has been fulfilled in your midst. And everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. He was saying, I am the Messiah. The kingdom of God has come. This is the kingdom. Transformation, healing, deliverance. It is here, and I am the man. We know they got it because they wanted to kill him and stone him, but it was not his time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? Isn't Jesus good? How many of you have tasted of this fruit? The Scripture says, taste and see... That God is good. Taste and see. Try it out. It's an offer you can't refuse. Test me. See if I'm not good. This fruit is good. Amen? I know this fruit is good because I've lived it. I've tasted it. I was one of these broken people. I was one of these captives to sin. I knew I was going down a hill, down a path to where I didn't want to be. I knew the devil didn't like me. I knew he had, he had tempted me with a fruit and gotten a hook in me that I couldn't get out of. I knew that he was stealing my dreams and destroying them. And when I finally came to my senses, I called out to Jesus a simple prayer. I happened to be in the shower. I was 19. And I knew that, that there was more than what I was living. That it wasn't enough. And I said, Jesus, I'll try it out. You know how much faith I had? The Bible says you need the faith the size of a mustard seed. That was, just, that, that was the metaphor then for the smallest thing anybody knew of. A mustard seed. I had enough faith to give God about two weeks. <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew I couldn't make a bargain with God and say, I'll try it out for two weeks. But in the back of my mind, I thought, I'll give it you know, two weeks. And if I don't like it, I'll go back to the way I was before. Hallelujah. It's been a long two weeks. He set me free. He delivered me. Hallelujah. He turned me into, hey, I'm not perfect, but he turned me into an oak of righteousness. Places where I was weak, where I was broken, where I'm in bondage. Now I'm helping others. Now I'm counseling others. Now I'm setting their minds free. Now I'm seeing the Lord use me. Hallelujah. God is good. And he is good all the time. Hallelujah. You know, I love that. A man with an experience is never the victim of a man who only has an argument. You can argue all you want that God isn't real. And I tell you, I know He's real because I walk with Him. I talk with Him and I've experienced Him in my life. Are you proud to be a Christian? Being a Christian is the best thing out there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, it goes on to say... I love this book. This is such a radical book. If we can, you know, remove our religious thinking and actually read it for what it says, I mean, hallelujah. Goes on to say, verse 4. See, we want the context. A text without a context is just a pretext, I think. What's that saying? I think I got it right. Anyways, when you read a text, you want to get the context. That's the point. Verse 4, same, same flow of what it's talking about. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. They. They. Can you say they? they. Turn to your neighbor and say they. they. Who's they? Us. Oh, this is so beautiful. Jesus, this is the kingdom. Jesus comes down, transforms us, and from the inside out, empowers us to go out and change Bermuda. Hallelujah. we got to renew our mind about what church is all about. Church is not about a religious thing. It's not about a gathering. It's not about a building. Do you know when, 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 
I said, I said at, the, the, at the conference, I wanted to shock the people, and I said, do you know the word church doesn't even occur in the Bible? And some people were saying amen. I thought, you didn't get it. <laughs> the word church doesn't occur in the Bible. I, now, we do have the word church there, but the definition of what we have for it is, is, is very different from what the original definition was. You see... Church was not a religious term, had no religious uh, implications or significance. They chose a secular term. The term was ecclesia. And ecclesia meant assembly. It was an assembly with legislative authority. It was like a senate or, 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 or the house of representatives. So ecclesia, the senate with representative authority. When I say senate, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What questions do you need to ask? Well, is it government? You think government? You think where, right? Oh, this, is, it, is it the Senate of the U.S.? Is it, is it uh, whatever they have in London? Is it Bermuda? You know, wh- where is it? You don't know what I'm talking about. Is it just this body over a corporation? Where is it? You immediately think it gets its definition. You know, the Senate doesn't mean anything if you don't know where it is. If you don't know it's the Senate of the U.S., right? It could be the Senate of, 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 of a tiny little city, right? Okay. This was the term they used. So whenever they said church, people thought, okay, what's he talking about? The kingdom. The church and the kingdom go together. Folks, we need to renew our thinking. Church is not about us. Church is not about building some sort of structure, whether it be a building, whether it be an organization, whether it be a discipleship ministry or something, where we rescue people out to gather them in to kind of exist on their own. No. It's about us being equipped and being trained because our destiny is to rule and to reign and to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the cities that have been devastated for generations. Your destiny and your call is to disciple nations. Your destiny and your call is to disciple Bermuda. The Lord wants to awaken you to an identity of what it means to be Bermudan. And to show that. I believe beneath the veneer of prosperity and beauty, there's this deep loneliness, this deep orphanhood, this deep uh, 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 emptiness. That all of creation is longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. That Bermuda is crying out for the real thing. They don't want religion, but they want the real thing. They don't know the words to put to it. Many of them can't even use the words Christ or God. Why? Because of the wounding they've experienced. To them, Christ is a swear word. To them, God is is something that has hurt them and wounded them. But they're longing for a real thing, for a spirituality that isn't just fluff, for values that mean something. They want to change the world. They want to make a difference. Do you know more and more young people, they don't want to go into the marketplace and make a a million dollars to get a big house. They want to make a change. The fastest growing uh, major at Stanford, which is known as one of the most, uh, a very liberal university. Very, you know, I mean, it's not a place that you think of as the Bible Belt. The fastest growing major is social entrepreneurship. People want to make a difference. They want their life to change, to to, to mean something more than just getting rich. All of creation is longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. And we are called to restore the places that have been long devastated, renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Oh, I love this. You need to read 61, 62, and 63 all together. It's one message because then he goes on to say, and he talks about how Jerusalem is going to be married and how when the sons marry Jerusalem in Isaiah, in in the next chapter, there will be a transformation. It will go from being a place that was desolated to a place where the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. I tell you, Bermuda, God wants to make Bermuda famous for some place other than a beautiful place to come for vacation. He wants a destiny and a values, the Christian values that you represent. When you look at the reputation of Bermuda, I think something in your heart breaks because you say, we're more than that. We're more than that. And I tell you, the Lord wants to build upon that and make that the reputation of this nation. Of, of this nation. 
so that around the world, the world will know about the righteousness and the glory of God. You will be called by a new name. An identity will be spoken over you. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands. Not in the hands of the wealthy or the rich of this world or in the devil's hands or in whoever's hands, but in the Lord's hands so He can get the glory. Oh, I believe that the rich and the powerful folks, you are already serving them. They're going to come here and receive more than just relaxing and restoration in the body that they came for. They're coming here for a reason. They're coming here for needs. And they're going to counter. They might come for what they know, but they're going to get what God knows they need. And it's a connection with God. An opening to the reality of the Spirit. A a relationship with God outside of the realms of what they have seen before and thought of as religion. They're going to know that God is real and He loves them and be restored to relationship. And I believe that the destiny of Bermuda is to disciple the, 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 the movers and the shakers, the policy makers of this world. Will you receive that? No longer the tail, but the head. And Isaiah, I love him. He's so insightful and he's so, 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 he's so practical. Verse 5, it says, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. This is a promise for Bermuda. No longer will you be an orphan. As we've been praying over the city of San Francisco, I'm from the Bay Area and we're working with a group with, with a network all across the Bay Area. And one of the most exciting things that the Lord did this year was lay an apostolic foundation for transformation in the city of San Francisco, owned by the local leaders. God's doing amazing things. When I say San Francisco, I mean, you normally think of things other than, you know, Scripture, the Bible, Jesus loving. But I tell you, what's really happening there is what God is doing. Uh, in 2005, we launched a house of prayer in the city of San Francisco. And uh, what we could do at the time with our friends and with our network was mobilize 12 hours of prayer once a week. And that was a stretch. We're like, I hope we can sustain this, okay? But you know what? We had married the land. We had shifted. We understood that God loved San Francisco and that his passion was to transform it that we didn't have to pray to influence God to do something He wouldn't otherwise do. We just had to agree with Him. Hallelujah. And you know, when we married the land, you know what's happened since? Just a few years later, this house of prayer has birthed the house of prayer movement. That particular house of prayer is going, I think, about probably close to 40 hours a week now. So it's grown. But it's birth a movement now. There's over a dozen houses of prayer and counting. And uh, uh, we had a very important proposition on the, the ballot in this last election to, to, um, uh, to redefine marriage as, I mean, between one man and one woman, Prop 8 in California. And that was really a rallying cry, and we felt we needed to pray and press in. So two months before the election, these houses of prayer came together and said, you know, none of us are in a place where we can go 24-7 yet on our own, but why don't we commit together to coordinate our schedules so that there'll be 24-7 prayer going up around the region for transformation. Hallelujah. That started two months before the election, and, they, and a few weeks later they said, this is so much fun, let's not stop until Jesus comes back. Hallelujah. 24-7 prayer is happening in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand clap. But what I was saying is you look at San Francisco and as we are praying and discerning the Lord and say, okay, what, what, what are the felt needs? What is, and the Lord said, you know, you can focus on all the sin, but the root of it is this orphan spirit. People are lonely and they don't have an identity. And all the rest is just a facade built over that. And that really changed things. Because that's what we need to pray into. That's what we need to pray over. San Francisco doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who she's called to. That's why she's so lost and running all over. They're trying to find out who they are. And beneath the anger and the, 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 the radical, weird lifestyles, anything goes. I mean, if you want to be re- weird and stick out in San Francisco... You know, be like me, you know, a normal guy. You stick out there, okay? <laughs> and it, beneath that all is a loneliness and a lack of identity that, wants, that needs to be reconnected with the Father. An orphanhood. 
And I would submit to you that that is the same issue with Bermuda. An orphanhood. And what the Lord is saying here, because it's an orphan, it then becomes um, the mistress. Doesn't know who she is. So now people take advantage of her for her beauty, but no one's willing to marry her and commit to her. And I would submit to you that that's a very similar dynamic has happened here in Bermuda because there's been an orphan spirit. Everybody comes in and now says, this is your identity, this is what you can do for me, and I'll set you up, I'll take good care of you, but you're still a mistress. You, they're not re ready to marry you. And that's this promise here where it says, your sons, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. Folks, the children, the sons and the daughters of Bermuda will come up and it will come from the inside out and will marry this land. And when people come to use it, they'll say, she's spoken for. She has an identity. And the identity is going to come from the inside out. And you're going to discover what it is, what it means, and you're going to define it from the Spirit, from God, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God wants to speak over you a new identity. And it begins with us coming back to the Father to receive healing and to come into a deeper connection with Him, be restored in our relationship with Him, to become delivered from the remnants of the orphan spirit in our own hearts so that we can know what it means to be sons and daughters in a whole new way. And when we learn to become sons and daughters in a whole new way, then we can go out and be fathers and mothers and birth Bermuda, birth the nation into its purposes. That's what I'm speaking about is this release of an anointing of intercession to pray the kingdom of God into Bermuda. Folks, that is not only the destiny over this nation. That is the destiny over this congregation. Receive it in the name of Jesus. This is what he was talking about. To go further into the context, I want you to go to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And at the end, and there it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. You know, Malachi was the last revelation that was given before John the Baptist came and Jesus came. This was, this was with with which this was the message that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit sent to summarize all the revelation of God up to that point and to be the specific message that Israel needed to receive to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And he says, I am sending Elijah. And we know that this was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Jesus said, John the Baptist was Elijah if you had received him. So John the Baptist came. This was his message. This was his call. And you see, transformation, the kingdom of God, is a great and dreadful day of the Lord. What does it mean? When God shows up, if you're prepared for Him, it is the most great and wonderful and glorious thing for you. But if you're unprepared for Him, what should be a day of glorious visitation will be a day of dread. Because His very presence that He wants to restore you will destroy you. And he says right here, Malachi says right here, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Folks, if we're going to understand what Jesus was preaching about when he said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, we're going to have to understand this message. This was the message of John the Baptist. And Jesus said, you cannot receive me because you rejected John the Baptist. Unless you understand the message of John the Baptist. Unless we understand what he's saying here. To turn our hearts, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Unless we, unless we understand that and implement that, we are going to be blind and unable to receive what God wants to do. Just like the Pharisees, because they had rejected John the Baptist, they were so blinded that they could not understand who Jesus was, even though he raised the dead right in front of them, and they had no doubt that the man was dead, had been dead for three days, and was now alive, and that it had happened at Jesus' word. They were so blinded that at that, their response at that was, oh, wow, 
if he can do this, everyone's going to believe he's the Messiah. Yeah, <laughs> what more proof could you want? We're going to have to kill him, and not only him, we better kill that Lazarus guy too. Why were they so blinded? The Bible says they were so blinded because they had rejected the message of John the Baptist. And because they rejected John the Baptist. So this is something very important that we need to understand. And see, what he says there is he's summarizing the the message of the entire book. But more than that, he's summarizing the story that goes throughout the whole scriptures. It's interesting that the Old Testament begins, in the beginning, God. It begins with the Father. It talks about the Father taking the initiative. And then it talks about creation. God created this and that. And he built this beautiful home. The first New Jerusalem. The Garden of Eden. All of creation. And we think of the Garden of Eden as such a little pastoral place with just two of them. you know. No, the Garden of Eden was the original New Jerusalem. It was the center from which Adam, who was called to rule and to reign. I mean, you know, God had envisioned a big family from the beginning. Sometimes we think that children came as part of the fall. No, no, no. No, they were called to be fruitful and multiply before the fall. God had envisioned a great big family. And the garden was meant to be the first new Jerusalem from which they would rule and administer His kingdom. And when He created all this, and He created this wonderful place, one thing was lacking. Family. And it says He created, He created, and then He says... Let us make man in our image. What does that mean? In our image. It means with everything else, he made it, he created it. But with Adam, he begat him. He made him as a child. He was his child. The Bible says Adam was the son of God the same way David was the son of Jesse. The word image, it means mirror reflection. In other words, if you were in the garden... You walk by Adam, you look twice, oh, it's you, Adam. For a moment, I thought it was God. That means when you looked at Adam, you say, oh, I know who your father is. He looked just like his dad. God wanted a family. And then the fall came. Until the Lord began to show me this, that it's about, what does this mean? Turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. You see, Right here, God is setting it up to say, this is what I'm doing with sending my son. I, the Father, am turning my heart to you, my children, to redeem you back. The Lord took me back to the garden and said, what happened there? And I said, well, you know, man fell from grace with God. Sin came in. He says, no, that's not it. That doesn't describe it. You don't understand because both terms are undefined. Who is man and who is God? Right? He says, what happened is a son rejected his father. And we think of the curse that came, but have you ever thought of it from a different perspective? The broken heart, the the, the sorrow that God felt when he lost his son. You see, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son was more than just a little parable that was a nice story. It was a, a story, a metaphor encapsulating the whole history, you know, the story of the whole Bible. What's happening? This love affair, this father who's lost his son, who for some reason wants what the father can give him, but doesn't want a relationship with the father. And there's three characters there, the prodigal son that runs off. But there's also the son that stays, who's also a functioning orphan. Because although he stays, he serves the father out of duty, but he never opens up his heart to a relationship with him. And the key to understanding that is when the son comes back, the father sees him from a long ways off. What does that mean? That means every day the father is going out and interceding and crying out, Oh son, come back to me. Oh son, come back to me. I miss you. I love you. But he knew that he had to let it run its course. Running after him would never get his son's heart. He could compel him back according to the law. He could compel him back according to, you know, whatever reasons. He could bribe him or manipulate him. But that would only get the external. What he wanted was his son's heart. I so long for our relationship to be restored. Come back to me. And he knew that eventually 
the sun's thing would run its course and he'd be at his lowest point and he would come back. But when he came back, he came back and says, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me like a hired hand. But before he could say, treat me like a hired hand, the father said, yes, you're no longer worthy. But it's not about being worthy. You were never worthy in the first place. Were you worthy when you were pooping your diapers? Were you worthy when you were crying and whining? It was all about you. You were never worthy. Worthy has nothing to do about it. There's a relationship. You're my son. I love you because you're my son. So treat me like a hired hand. Who do you think I am? I never treated you like my son because of what you can do for me. It was out of a relationship. Be quiet. Don't even say that. And he interrupted him and says, no, put a ring on his finger. Put, kill the fatted calf. Put robes upon him. Let him know that he's my son and it's by grace and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a relationship. Folks, God has chosen you. And it's not about what you have done. Folks, before the foundation of the earth, if you can hear, if anything, receive this impartation of the love that God has for you. The love that God has for you. I am turning the hearts of the fathers. I love you so much that I cannot bear to be parted with you. That I will risk it all. I will send my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Because I would rather risk losing him than go throughout all eternity and not know that I had done everything possible to redeem you back. That's how much God loves us. The same love with which he loves Jesus Christ. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let him impart this to you. Let this go deep. With the same love he loves Jesus Christ, he loves you. If we don't understand this, we're not going to understand... The message of Jesus. So he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we understand this, we realize repent is a changing of mind. Repentance is showing the door. And it's like, wow, show me the door. I want to walk through. Now, how do we walk through? Now I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5. You see, the Old Testament begins with in the beginning God. And then he summarizes it there in Malachi. And this, uh, this concept of a father coming, seeking after his children. That's the story that permeates throughout the scripture. It's the main theme of which every speaker is talking about. This what was, what can be, the fall, and then the restoration. This is what happened with Abraham. When Abraham was called, he was called to be a father of many nations. And God now was calling out Abraham to reveal himself to him so that through him he could reveal himself to the world. And you see, Abraham was called to be a, was, was called a son of God. Why? Because he heard and obeyed. But it wasn't enough for him to just hear and to obey. He had to learn how to hear and obey the word, even though when the word was contrary to the last word that he had received. You see, there was a relationship that Abraham had to walk into. And when Abraham finally received his promise, Isaiah, God told him something radical. And he said, now I want Isaac, I mean, now you've received the son of your promise that you've waited for for so long, Isaac. Okay, now I want you to go sacrifice him. And Abraham had known enough up to that point to know that he could trust God even when he couldn't understand him. And he knew the voice of the Lord. And even though he didn't understand it, he did what was most difficult to him. And he walked up and you know he got to the last minute and then the Lord spoke to him again and says, don't lay a hand on the son. You see, if he had been stuck into religion, he says, no, I'm following the word of the Lord. What tragedy would have happened? So he walked up there, and then the word changed. And why, was, why did Abraham have to walk through all of that? Folks, listen to this. Because Abraham was called to be someone who would reveal God. And see, the call of a prophet is more than just someone who stands up and speaks words. It's our lives need to show it the same way that Jesus' life need to show it. Abraham had to walk it out. 
He had to do a dress rehearsal so he would understand the heart of God. So he'd get this revelation that it's not about just one son to meet your needs. It's about the same love that you have for Isaac. I have for the whole world. I would never have you kill him. You're not, you're not able to handle that. But you had to know what I'm going to do. And you had to obey me and learn to obey me even when you don't understand. So now let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And this is known as the Beatitudes. Now I want to give you a different perspective on this. You know, this, you can't separate language from culture. Language and culture go together. If you don't understand the culture, you won't understand the language. And in fact, you know, I, I lived in Portugal for a few years and I learned the language there. And, and if you work hard, it's one thing to learn the language and you can do that in a year, two years, maybe three years, you know. Um, but it's a lifetime to really learn the culture and the metaphors, okay? So you, the people will say all this stuff and now, I mean... It's a Western culture, so so many of the metaphors are intermixed and you get them. But when you get really down to the slang and the values, it's like, I have no idea what they were saying, okay? So unless you understand the culture, and see, since we have lost the Hebraic culture of which the scriptures were written in, we miss so much of what this Bible means. Because we often, when we translate it, we translate it in, in a matter of just words. I mean, I used to think growing up that the Bible was like, a collection of sayings, kind of like Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin Franklin, where he said all these things that, you know, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that's what his almanac was, a collection of sayings, okay? That's what I thought the Bible was, because that's how it was presented to me. You know, one passage here, one passage there, one there, and we dissect it so much, that we, and we lose the culture of which it was written and the story of which it was written. And so... As I've, you know, I, b made friends with Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews are Jews who realize that, that, that when they come to Jesus, they don't feel like they're changing religions because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus was a Jew. I mean, it's so sad that so many Jews think if they're going to get born again, they've got to change their religion. How weird can that be? No, I mean, he was theirs originally. All the writers were Jewish. And they realize that receiving their Messiah is being completed. And I've been so enriched out of this relationship as they tell me about Jewish culture, things that they know immediately, that the original readers would have known immediately, that are totally lost. And when one of them shared with, he said, an example of this is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I had always understood that as Blessed are the peacemakers. What do you think of? Two people that are fighting. The peacemaker comes up and says, stop fighting, be friends. Right? That's how I'd always stood, understood that. And he says, no. In the Jewish culture, when you say peacemaker, or the word that was used here, what they would immediately think of is one who's made his peace with God. So it's not talking about a mediator between somebody else, but someone who is at peace with God because he has made his peace. He's been reconciled to God. Okay, now you can get, once you're reconciled to God, you can go out and, and reconcile others, but that is not at all what this passage is speaking about. A better translation would be, blessed is what, he who has made peace, or blessed are those who have made peace, or those who make peace, okay? With the implication being peace with God. Now, when you change that, you understand. See, the other thing we do is in the Hebraic mindset, they were much more like the Africans or the indigenous people. They had a very holistic mindset. They believed the world was a spiritual world, that everything was connected together. So they would read this as one thing, all interconnected in the relationship between it. It's the Greeks, which is the basis of Western culture, the English culture, the American culture. See, you guys have such a privilege to be a melting pot here, where you have this combination. You can pick and choose the best from each of them, okay? But the, the Western culture dissects things, puts things in, in, in neat little categories to, 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 to understand them, to control them, as it were, okay? The Greeks' view of spirituality, they were the first secularists. Now, they had many gods, but the gods were essentially irrelevant. Their worship was more or less just to cover all their bases because what happened here on earth and what happened in the spiritual realm were disconnected and what was, the spiritual realm was irrelevant to what happened today. 
So they separated everything. The Hebraic mindset, the mindset, the culture in which this scripture was written, the culture in which all of this is assumed, the language which we need to learn if we're going to understand the teachings of Jesus and of the scriptures was Hebraic. They saw everything together. So they would read these as one continual thing and see the interconnection. In other words, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? In Matthew chapter 4. Then what happens right next? He's going all over and he's showing what it means. You're sick, you get to be healed. You're blind, you get to see. You're hungry, you get to be fed. He's demonstrating it. Then he sits them down and says, Now let me explain to you what I just started talking about. There's eight of these, eight Beatitudes. Eight is the number of new beginnings. What he's doing is let me show you step by step the progression you go to, to repent, to enter from the kingdom of this world where you are, the kingdom of darkness, to come into the kingdom of of heaven, which I am preaching. He's walking them through it. And it all pivots on this one, which is number seven. You will make peace with God. In other words, I'm telling you how to be reconciled to your Father. He's given us the pathway out. And number eight then is, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins with number one, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then number eight there in verse 10 is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see a complete circle. And at the end, once you've made peace with God, now at at first you're at enmity with God and you were at peace with the world. Now you've made peace with God, so once you're at peace with God, you're going to be persecuted. So don't worry about the persecution. It's because you're at peace with God and now you've received the kingdom of heaven. And folks... I pray that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, imparts to you because right here is the pathway out. Right here is the pathway for you to transform what you've been going through this this last year. And it's more than that, but I mean, I think this last year is enough to transform it into pain and suffering that is pain and suffering, to pain and suffering which was a gateway to the release of the glory, to a, a release of authority and establishment, of birthing and of identity, that will then be a fountain of life. Folks, what you have gone through is a type and is a shadow of the cross, as it were. It says, fill up then what you will. You know, Paul talks about filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ and how he participated with, with Christ in his sufferings. We don't add to redemption, but God needs a face here on this earth. He needs to show to us See, people need more than just a gospel that is name it and claim it and is everything is good and everything is fancy. They are attracted to people who know the reality of pain and suffering but have a hope that's bigger than that. So the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. And again, poor in spirit is a bit of a religious, you know, uh, watered down translation. I mean, we don't use the term poor in spirit. You, I mean, do you use that in your normal language? You say, hey, that guy over there, he's really poor in spirit. Man, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit of poor in spirit today. Hey, that dude, man, you know, he's poor in spirit. No, what does it mean? Well, what it means is blessed are the depressed. That would be a very accurate translation. Blessed are the depressed. Why are the depressed blessed? So we need to start blessing the depressed and inviting them and attracting them. And when someone's depressed, say, you are so blessed. Why? For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why is it good to be depressed? Folks, you're in enmity with with God. You're at peace with the world, but enmity with God. But I tell you, the world system, it's messed up. It's no good. And if you think everything is okay, I'm sorry, I have got no hope for you. But if you're depressed, if you feel the pain, if you realize there's something more out there, you are blessed. Because if you act upon that, that will be the the beginning point. That will get the ball rolling to bring you to the kingdom of heaven. Folks, I was blessed when finally I got to be a little bit depressed of my sin. Because that began for me to say, there's got to be something more than what I'm living in. Blessed are the depressed. 
We've got to start blessing the depressed rather than just saying, come to church, praise and worship, forget about it all. Forget about all that. God is good. And we ignore it and we don't look at the pain. We're afraid of, of confronting it. And so we preach a gospel that's kind of manic depressive. We're happy on Sunday, but then we got to, you know, oh man, you know. And, and as long as we're hyper and doing stuff, you know, and we get all of our, because we have not been healed in our identity. And so many Christians are serving him out of a place where they have not been healed of their identity. So they have to do, 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 do. Because as long as they're doing good, they feel good. But if they stop and reflect long enough, they look around and say, I don't belong here. I'm unworthy. Feeling of shame, feeling of emptiness. And they look around and say, oh, look at all those happy Christian people. Oh, they're so spiritual. Let me put on the smile. Let me pretend I'm spiritual too. But if they could poke around and get a little deeper, how many other people have the same mask on, but inside they're empty? I tell you, if you're depressed, let it come out. Today is the day for you to be blessed if you are depressed, because I say to you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. But you can't stay there. Don't make your depression an idol. The next step is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And folks, we need to understand mourning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will release upon this congregation a divine revelation to understand how to mourn. James, he says, purify your hands, you sinner, and cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, weep, and mourn. See, it's not enough for us just to cleanse our hands. If you're living in sin, if you're struggling with pornography, as so many young people or older people are, you know, maybe you, I'm just using that as one example. We could think of a, many different examples. You know, when you come and, and you want to change and you come to someone and you repent, you bring it into the open, well, how do we normally treat that? Unfortunately, all we do is help the person cleanse their hands. We say, okay, well, stop it. Where are you doing it? Okay, delete it off your computer. Okay, put in, you know, put in the, 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 the filtering mechanisms and, and blah, blah. And now you'll be in accountability. I'll call you and, you know, we'll pray with you and we'll cleanse your hands. Stop doing that. Wonderful first step. Do it. If you're sinning, sin no more. Cleanse your hands. But if we stop there, what's going to happen? The weed is going to grow back up because we've never gotten out the root. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, if you're, walking in, if you're walking in pornography, or if you're having an affair, if you're cheating on your wife, it's not enough for you just to bring that into the light and to repent and you know, come into somebody. You then need to go deeper because the reason you're, you're, you're fooling around is because your relationship with your wife, there's something wrong. You're not connected. There's a lack of intimacy. Your heart needs to be restored. We've got to go deeper. You need to be healed of this wounding so you can be in the right relationship you were meant to be with your wife so you can fall back in love with her so that then your hands are cleaned and your heart is pure and purified. We've got to go deeper. Be miserable, weep, and mourn. We've got to learn how to mourn. Mourn the loss. Whenever you look at the external action, whatever it is, whether it's an alcohol, alcoholic, the action is the fruit. There's a deeper root which is a wounding and a hurt we've got to deal with that wounding and that hurt and folks society doesn't know how to do this and we this is a church have got to learn how to do this so that we can show others this is part and parcel of repentance we've got to look at our sin not as oh i offended god in some arbitrary way but see it for what it is i need to see that my sin that i was living in in my case those years back it was this sexual uh, uh, immorality that i was captive to i had to see that not only was i violating god's law i knew that but what did i care I mean, that's God. Who do, I mean, it's, you know, and I had this theology that protected myself, you know, a fire insurance theology, you know. <laughs> but when I was able to mourn it and see the pain that I was first of all causing myself, I mean, God, you know, deals with us so often. I mean, we spiritualize it, but we're coming back to him because we're screwed up and we're in pain and we don't want to hurt anymore. And God says, great, I don't care why you're coming back. That's a starting point. Come back to me. And I first needed to grieve and to mourn it. And there was a cleansing process where I realized God has something so much better for me. I'm having my dreams sapped out of me. I'm held captive to this sin. This thing is becoming an addiction. It's pulling me along and I want to be set free. 
And God has something so much better. Sex in marriage is so much better than anything the world has out there to offer. And we need to understand, we're not just hurting God, we're hurting ourselves. That was the first step. The next step is I, it, later on, when the Lord knew I could handle it, a little, not too much later on, He showed me the pain I caused others. And broke my heart over it. So that I could mourn and weep. And then He went deeper when I could handle more. And says, you know what? There was some wounding in your own heart where your own spirit had been wounded by rejection and the law and religion and things that you needed. You never had an identity spoken over you the way you needed it. And then I had to mourn it. About five or six years ago, her husband, in perfect health, in his early 70s, died just just like that. He fell down, they called the paramedics, and he, he was dead, something with the heart. And, uh, and I mean, they, I mean, they, you know, they were lovebirds, too. I mean, they, this was, they were so connected, you know. And the, the Lord taught her something out of that that was so pro- profound and so powerful. The Lord taught her how to mourn. And her friends came around her and tried to comfort her. And she says, listen, I don't need to be comforted. But if you want to get your walking shoes and come with me, I'm going to the lake. She went to the lake, which was her place where she could be with God. She put on her walking shoes. She went out there and she said she walked around that lake and just began to wail. Wail and weep. and Say, oh God, oh God. She said she walked around and she felt a little bit better. She was exhausted. She went home, got up the next day, went back. And everybody would try to say, oh, you know, oh, it's okay, it'll be all right. She says, listen, sister, I don't need that. You want to come with me, you come with me. But I don't need that. I don't need that comfort. Don't give me that comfort. (laughs) She went the next day and walked around. She said, after about three or four days, finally, I felt the last whale leave and I could truly bury him. And then she just moved on. And she, because she had processed it, she was able to move on. And now she has this powerful ministry. She tells me all these stories after she prayed for me. Okay, you're sending me. It's all right. I'm going to talk about my mother, okay? You know, these ladies in arthritis, you know, and way overweight and the ace bandages, and she was telling her about all this medicine she needed. She said, ever since my husband passed, and blah, blah, blah. And she said, listen, sister, you don't need no medicine. And I hate to tell you, but your husband didn't pass. He's dead. What you need is you need a pair of walking shoes and come with me. We're going tomorrow. She'd go pick her up, take her there. And she said, this lady could barely walk. And she'd get out there. And she said, now, let it out. She said, I can't say that. She said, you let it out, sister. She's a prophet. I mean, you're not, not giving you any slack. You let it out. She'd start oh, just wailing. And it all had been pent up, pent up. Just wailing. She said, now, how long do I do this? You do it till you're done. Let the Lord know how you feel. Let him know what's going on. And then she said, I said, did she get healed? Of course she got healed. She said, that wasn't no medical problem. That was the poison up in her body over and over again. The other thing they say is a divorce is the second hardest thing you go through. And sometimes that's worse because there's a reason. There's an explanation. No one's guilty in a, in a, in a death. You've got to go through the same mourning process. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If we skip the mourning, God can't comfort you. All you're going to get is human comfort, and it's going to be superficial, and you're going to be crippled the rest of your life. Let the Lord set that bone. And the next step is, can you stay with me a little bit longer, okay? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What do you think of when you think of meek? Well, you know, we think of someone who doesn't have much of a backbone, right? Well, that's not the, the term, the way the original readers did not read that at all. This term, meek, was taken from the Roman army, which was, you know, very, everybody knew about the Roman army, okay? It was like talking about basketball in the U.S., okay? And this term, meek, was what they used to describe a war horse. 
And a war horse was of extreme value because not only did they have to be the best horses, but the training was very, very intense. So it was like owning a Rolls Royce or, or a fight. They were the fighter airplanes of their time, okay? And so a, a war horse, they chose the best horses and then they went through all this training. Not only did they have to train them to respond to the commands of their riders instantly, but then they had to train them to be in the midst of intense noise and not fear it. They had to train them to be cut and to be hurt and not phased at all. They had to train them to, to not be afraid of fire. All these things that are contrary to their nature. But they'd train them. And then the last step they would take on is they had to make their horses totally obedient. Learn, teach them to be totally obedient. So they would starve the horse, keep it from water until it was near the point of death. And then they would take it down to buy a cool, beautiful stream of water. And there's the horse standing there, and they would give it the command and say, stay. And when that horse would not drink, even though it was on the point of death, when the horse would obey their command to the point of death and not drink until they released it and said, drink, then they said, this war horse is ready, it's ready to go into battle, and this horse is meek. What's he talking about? We need to grieve and mourn, but not the way the world does. And then we need to come to the place where we so understand God that we trust Him more than our own understanding. Where we say like Job, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Folks, the power that will be released upon this. And I'll close with this. What were Jesus's second to the last words when He was laying, hanging on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was mourning. Up to that point, he had not uttered a word. All this pain, the whipping, the beating, the humiliation, the hanging on the cross, all the physical suffering. He did not open a word. He did not complain. I believe all of his life he had prepared himself for that. He was ready for it. And as difficult as it was, it was one thing. But then when God shut down, sent the darkness over the earth, when the veil was ripped, God, it says that he turned his back on his son because he could not look at, on sin. And he poured the sin and he imputed our sin upon his son. And this communion that had been since eternity past, the driving force that had driven Jesus all this time, the place where he could fall back upon when even his mother didn't understand him, when his closest friends and disciples were, were playing for the other team, when even John the Baptist doubted him, he could go to his father and out of this was this fount that sustained him. And when God broke that and turned his back and poured it on, it was too much for him. He couldn't handle it anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was mourning. He was grieving. And what did he say next? Into my hands I commit into your hands I commit my spirit. He committed his spirit into the one who had forsaken him. You see, then, when we become meek, then, then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, if we skip to this, there's no depth to it. Then, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Then we can be cleansed and purified. Then, blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. As we seek God, we begin to dispense mercy to everyone else. And then they say, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who have, been made, who have made peace with God, for they will be called sons of God. I tell you, when you go through this, when you allow the Lord to transform this pain and suffering that you've experienced this last year and longer, when you allow this, that when you walk through this process, not only is God going to speak a new identity over you, he is going to speak an identity of who you were meant to be. You will understand what it means to be a child of God like never before. Folks, if you walk through this path, you'll be floating in this connection, in this presence with God that is so powerful that will totally transform your life. But not only that, everybody's going to know. They're going to say, there is something different about you. Tell me about it. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Some people won't understand you. The system won't understand you. The devil won't understand you. But that's okay. 
because your inheritance will be the kingdom of God. And folks, this is what the Lord wants to do through you for Bermuda. An understanding of God's love for you. And so I just want to give you an invitation right now. And I want to invite you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're depressed, if you've gone through anything difficult, you know, I've already spoken the message. If you want to respond to it, if you want to mourn, just stand up right now and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray, then I'm going to give the, 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 the um, service over to Bishop uh, Neville. And the worshipers will be up here. And we'll just go from there. But stand up before the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, Father. Lord, I just worship you, Father. Lord, and I just release this word, Lord God. And God, we invoke your name. We call upon your name as our Father, God. Lord, we can't do this, Lord. Our minds are not enough. And we ask you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And right now, I declare that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Father, I declare, blessed are those who mourn. And Father, I pray, Lord, release the anointing to mourn, Lord God. Lord, blessed are those who are, are poor in spirit. Blessed are the depressed. Lord, who've gone through hard times and recognize that it's not easy. Lord, but are able to face their pain and to mourn, Lord God. And Father... Lord, take us to that place where we are meek, where you are everything to us, where we have no other out, Lord, where we will not drink of the water unless your word, unless you speak to us and release us, Lord God. Lord, where though you slay us, yet will we trust you. Oh, Father God, Lord, I just right now release this anointing to mourn, Lord God. Lord, to process, Lord. Lord, the suffering that they have gone through so that your Holy Spirit can transform it, can transform it into resurrection power. There will be hope and joy from the Spirit, from God, that can never be taken. And Lord, that will go out like a beautiful fragrance all across this island, Lord. Lord, and into places all over the world, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, amen.